Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. Please open up to the 11th chapter of Romans, your Bible. We're going to continue our study of Paul's letter to the church at Rome and What I'm going to need to do just quickly is give you a brief reminder of where we're at in the 11th chapter. What Paul is talking about in the 11th chapter of Romans is he is writing to a predominantly Gentile group of believers in Rome. And he is encouraging them to be steadfast in their faith. And one of the ways that he does that is he is using the examples of the Jews who in large part in Paul's day had rejected Christ and were cut off from God's covenant, from God's blessing. They were under his condemnation and judgment instead of His grace. And so, Paul is writing to the Gentile believers and he is talking to them as a people group, saying, in the same way that the Jews who had clearly were throughout all the Old Testament, the people that God had chosen and blessed so abundantly, they had then at Paul's day arrived at a position where in large part they had rejected the truth of God, rejected, they wouldn't say that, but they rejected the Savior, His Son, that He had sent. And what Paul is saying to the Gentiles as a people group is be careful, be aware, be warned. You can be in a very privileged position and then over time you as a people group could wind up in the same situation in which the Jews find themselves today. What I did the last few Sundays is I gave some examples of history how the the model of the Jew is repeated in that there are places that have been incredibly blessed by God with an incredible presence of the Christian church. And now, generations later today, the church is almost absolutely absent. So that's the context into which Paul is speaking. We're going to pick it up in verse 20. We're going to cover three verses this morning, 20, 21, and 22. These were a part of the last verses that I covered seven days ago, last Sunday. But I didn't get to draw out, didn't get to unpack some key truth here that I feel compelled by God to do. So let's pick up the text. Romans chapter 11, verse 20. Paul writing to the Gentile believers, using the example of the Jew and what happened with them to encourage them to remain strong in their faith. And Paul writes in verse 20, 
That is true. They, the Jews, were broken off because of their unbelief. But you, you Gentile believers, you stand fast through faith. We're going to see in each of these three verses this warning and idea of being broken off or cut off. I'm not going to re-preach this. I talked last Sunday to explain the meaning here that Paul is not talking about an individual believer and them losing their salvation. He's writing to a people group here and what can happen to a group of people over time, to a people group over time that might be under the great privileges of God and yet can become apostate. But what I want to point out here is the key word for verse 20. The key word for verse 20 is the word faith. Look at the verse again. Paul writes that the Jews as a people group were broken off because of what? Unbelief. They didn't have faith. Secondly, that the Gentiles, what enables Gentiles to stand fast, to remain connected, to be in on the blessing of God and the grace of God instead of the judgment and wrath of God is their faith. So the idea in this verse, the key idea is faith. Here's a question. I want to ask this morning, by the way, three questions and answer them. And here's the first one. What was Paul's goal for the Gentiles that he's writing to? What was Paul's goal? I think we can get at Paul's goal both by an explicit statement in verse 20 and by one that is implicit, not stated directly, but is there. The explicit statement is this, that faith, true faith in Jesus is what enables us to stand fast or firm. That's the direct statement that he makes at the end of verse 20. But here's the implied statement that is not verbalized, but is there powerfully. What Paul wants for the believers that he is writing to, what Paul wants for us today, what God wants for us today, is that we would be followers of Jesus who stand fast in our faith. That is, without question, the idea, the desire, the goal of Paul. That's why he is writing what he's writing, working as he's working, Encouraging them as he is, he wants to build up, fortify, shore up, strengthen their faith so that they will stand firm in their faith. So faith is the key to them standing fast. Faith is the key to us standing fast. Second question. If that's true, then what will enable the Gentile believers to stand fast through faith. What specifically is going to cause them to be strong in their faith? And what Paul does in verse, the last half of verse 20 is he identifies two characteristics, 
two keys that need to be true in the life of a believer. Let me just read them to you. He says at the end of verse 20, after he gives this warning, he says, so do not be proud, but fear. Do not be proud, but fear. Paul says, what you need to be as followers of Jesus, you need to be people who, who are without pride. Let me say that in the positive. People who live humbly before God and that you need to be people who fear. People who are humble and people who fear. Let me just say that in the negative. What will cause them to fall? The answer is pride. Said in the positive, what will keep them standing fast? The answer is Humility and fear. Now, does it seem, this is a rhetorical question, ponder it it in your mind, does it seem strange to you that Paul is emphasizing here that believers are to, in a sense, live in fear? I'm going to take that a step further. Paul is not just making mention of it, he is strongly advocating here, directly, explicitly advocating here, that believers in some sense are to live in a fear of God. He is saying that a critical reality of our life, our faith, so that it stands fast is that we have this element of a fear of God in our lives. So the point is that fear plays a critical role, has an important place in the life of a believer. Now, we have a limited vernacular in the English language when we think of fear It's something that drives us away, causes us to cower, but that's not the kind of fear, just for a quick point of clarity, that's not the kind of fear that Paul is talking about here. He's talking about a reverent fear, a fear that causes us to respect God for who He is, a fear that causes us to worship and adore Him for who He is, not cower and run from Him, but a fear a reverent fear and honor and respect that causes us to come to Him humbly. But the point is, there is to be that aspect of fear in the life of the believer before God. Verse 21, For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. He's writing again here to the Jewish people. I spent a good portion of the message last week showing that this doesn't, is not referring to someone losing their salvation once they are justified, once they're saved. The person who is saved is secure. And there's so many, we talked about many verses last week that again affirm that. But the point is that we are not to live presumptuously as believers before God. We're not to take His grace for granted. We're not to live glibly before Him as recipients of His grace. He's warning the Gentiles not to do that. Because what can happen over time in a people group that does that, 
over generations is that they who were so close to God and had God moving powerfully in them can arrive at a destination like the Jews arrived at where they were cursed and cut off from God as a people group. And so he is warning against that. Let me just kind of track down for context here Try to describe in about four or five steps this kind of downward process of the Jewish people that he is warning the Gentiles against here, not to follow this model. And it goes like this. The Jewish people were blessed greatly by God, and that blessing led them to a sense of spiritual superiority. They thought themselves better than those around them, more special in the eyes of God. Secondly, that superiority, that sense of superiority led to a heart of pride. And then, guess what pride always leads to? It blinds us. Pride is a blinding reality in our life. And what it blinds us to is our own desperate need of a Savior, our own sin and desperate need of a Savior, and their blindness related to their own condition caused this. When Jesus came as a Jew and as their Savior, the long-promised one, the Jews in their blindness didn't recognize Him for who He was, and they rejected Him. And the result of that rejection is that God rejected them because of their unbelief. That's the process that can happen in any group of people over time. Even though they may be under the incredible blessings of God that can move over time into a place of apostasy. So the point here is that humility and fear are key characteristics that will help us live A life of faith that stands fast, that is firm. Humility and fear are key components of a faith that stands fast and perseveres to the end. So then here comes the million dollar question. Question number three. Question number one, what is God, what is Paul's goal for The believers he's writing to, his goal is that they would stand fast in the faith. Question number two, what is it that will help them to stand fast in their faith? And it's humility and fear. And question number three is this, what is it that will kill pride while producing humility and fear so they can stand fast? If humility and fear are necessary, What is it that's going to strike a death blow to pride and produce humility and fear in us so that we can stand fast in our faith? And Paul gives us the answer in verse 22. Romans 11, 22. Paul goes on and he says, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but, kindness, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. 
what Paul is doing here is he is identifying the pathway that leads to the killing of pride and the producing of humility and fear. And he says the pathway is the kindness and the severity of God. And what does he tell us to do related to the kindness and the severity of God? He says this, note then, note then. What does that expression mean? It means just what it sounds like it means. Take note of this. Understand this truth. Be aware of how this works And specifically, what is it that we are to be aware of and understand and take note of and highlight? What we're to take note of is that God is a God of kindness and God is a God of severity. Both of those realities of God we need to understand. So, first of all, before I get into the specifics there, and kind of unpack that, what I want to do is I want to show you a propositional truth, uh, overall foundational truth that Paul communicates here without saying it expressly. And let me explain it like this. Remember the goal. The goal is believers who will stand fast in their faith that stand fast through humility and fear. And how is it that Paul works toward accomplishing that in his readers? Here's how he does it. He tells them about God. You see that in verse 22? He says, my goal is that you'd stand fast. You stand fast through humility and fear. And now I'm going to tell you how humility and fear can be alive and well in your life. You need to know the truth about God. Before we look at the specifics, just the general principle, you need to know the truth about God. So here's the propositional truth. And I am feel compelled by the Spirit to communicate this this morning because it is the most, not one of, not equal with other things, it is the most influential reality of your life. It is the thing that affects you day to day more than anything else on this planet affects you. It is your knowledge of God. That's true for the believer, and that's true for the unbeliever. The believer, where they're at in their understanding of God, who God is, how God works, who He is in His attributes, who He is in His character, His very nature, what we understand about God is going to be the most influential reality on how we live our day-to-day lives. And the same is true in an unbeliever. Unbeliever may not even believe whatsoever that there is a God. But the fact is then they're believing something about God and that impacts their life more than anything else. That is the most preeminent, critical reality of our lives. And what Paul is showing us here is that if we want to live a life that is honoring to God, that stands fast in faith, regardless of what comes our way, then what we're going to have to have is an accurate knowledge of God. So I'm going to give a secondary kind of bullet 
point to that. If that's true, how do we get that? How do we get an accurate knowledge of God if it is so monumentally important to our life? We better know how to get an accurate knowledge of God. And here's the truth. The only way you can understand the truth about God is if God reveals His truth. God is infinite. We're finite. We cannot, through mental calisthenics, figure out the truth about God. We have to have it revealed to us by God. So here's a complementary truth to that. Where has God revealed Himself? Everybody just, can you just do this if you've got a Bible? Can you just hold it up for a second? Right here is the revelation of God Himself to you. There is nothing else like it in the planet, on the planet. This is His book that He wrote to tell you about His attributes, about His character, about who He is and how He works and why He does what He does. This is the book. So, how critical it is that we look into this book. We'll get to this at the end. But we look into this book because here is where we're going to feed the most influential reality of our existence, our knowledge of God. And what now, that was general, now let's get specific. What are the two truths about God that Paul says will develop in us humility and fear so that we can stand fast in our faith. The two truths are this. God is a God of kindness. God is a God of severity. God is a God of kindness and a God of severity. What does that mean? What is God's kindness? God's kindness is His goodness and His compassion. God's severity is His exacting justice. His severe, exacting justice. God is a God of goodness and compassion. He's kind. God is a God of severe, exacting justice. He's a God of severity. Paul gives further clarity here. The second part of verse 22 in explaining the severity of God and the kindness of God. And look what he says. Severity toward those who have fallen. Talking again about the Jews who didn't believe God was severe in His judgment toward them. Severe in that they're no longer those that wouldn't believe that they are not in the covenant of God. They're not under the grace of God. They're not under the blessing of God. They're under the punishment and the justice and the wrath of God. What is the severity of God? It is His wrath. What is the kindness of God? Referring here to the Gentiles. Kindness to you, Gentiles, who have been saved. It is something they didn't deserve. They really merited God's wrath, but He didn't give them His wrath. He gave them grace and lavished His forgiveness and love and kindness upon them. 
That's the two examples there. He's talking about an ultimate level of severity and an ultimate level of kindness here. And then notice whose they are, this kindness and severity. They're God's. They're God's. He's both. Now I want to spend some time unpacking that because that's really what all this is moving toward is this truth right here. God's character is one of kindness and God's character is one of severity. Let me say that in some other ways. They mean the same thing. God is a God of love and He's a God of judgment. God is a God of grace and He's a God of wrath. God is a God of compassion and He's also a God who is a consuming fire. God is a God of peace and He's also a God of punishment. God is a God of friendship and He's also a God of fierceness. The kindness and the severity of God. Paul says that if you're going to have a strong faith through humility and fear, what you're going to have to understand about God is that both of those are true in Him. Now, I want to make this even more clear by telling you what Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying that God at times is a God of kindness and at other times He's a God of severity. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is that God is always the God that He is. That at all times, in all that He does, the God who is both kind and severe does all that He does out of the essence of who He is. He is always kind and severe. All of His acts include His entire nature, His kindness and His severity. He is always, whenever He does something, at the instant, both the God who is kind and both the God who is severe. I'm going to work on getting that explained, hopefully clarified even deeper. God does, let me say it this way, God does not set aside His severity to lavish His kindness. Let me say it the other way. God does not set aside His kindness to unleash His severity. He is always both of those all the time in all that He does. We cannot compartmentalize God. Therefore, I'll explain that a little deeper in a moment. Therefore, what Paul is saying here is what we need to realize related to God is that God is always who He is all the time and all that He does. He's a God of kindness who is also a God of severity. And we need to understand that. 
We need to have that knowledge of God because it is that knowledge of God that will produce in us, that will kill pride, produce humility and fear, and enable us to stand firm in our faith. Let me give you a couple of illustrations to explain that kind of in living color, how those two work together. The first one is the very situation in which Paul is writing. He's writing to the Gentiles. He's talking about the situation of the Jews, using them as an illustration. So let's just take both of those and plug them in to this idea of these two truths about God. God is a God of severity. Where was that seen? He didn't keep the Jews in His grace, in His love, in His lavished goodness. They persisted in their unbelief and He rejected them and cut them off and now they were under His condemnation and His punishment objects of His wrath. That's the kind of God He is. He's a God of severity. And He's also a God of kindness. The occasion for the Jews being cut off, we talked about the last couple of weeks, is that God brought the Gentiles in. He connected the Gentiles to the vine. He offered salvation to the Gentiles and lavished His love and His grace upon them. They didn't deserve it. They're guilty. They're sinners just like the Jews, but God brought them in and He saved them. Why? Because He's a kind God. He's a God of both severity and the God of kindness as illustrated in those two people groups at the same time working His plan on the earth then. Now let me give you a far, if that's not clear, here is the clearest picture in history, past, present, or future of human history about the truth of God's kindness and severity converging at one moment where all of God acts doing what He does both in His full kindness and in His full severity at the same instant, in the same place, in the same situation. And that situation is the cross of Jesus Christ that stood outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago upon which He hung and He died. That is the picture, the greatest, infinitely greatest picture of the truth about God's kindness and God's severity working at the same time in full measure at the same instant in the same thing that He's doing. All God is there doing it. Let me show that to you. It says, I'm going to read a passage in a verse out of Romans chapter 3. I'm going to read verse 26. Before I do that, let me set it up. In verse 25 of chapter 3, Paul is talking about how God the Father, this is a radical idea, God the Father gave, presented His own Holy Son as a sacrifice for sin. It was the work of God, the decision of God the Father to give His own Son as a sacrifice on the cross for sin. That is the idea communicated in Romans chapter 3, verse 25. And then in chapter 3, verse 26, Paul explains why God did that. And I want you to listen to the why. Verse 26. 
verse 26. It was to show His righteousness, God's righteousness. Why did God the Father give the Son as a sacrifice, a a propitiation, a sacrifice on the cross? It was so that He could show His righteousness at the present time. Listen, so that He, God the Father, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now let me explain that last phrase there. Paul writes that the first purpose for the death of Jesus Christ was this. It was to display the justice of God. Listen again. Why did God give His Holy Son on the cross for sin sacrifice? So that He might be just. It was to demonstrate, to prove for all of humanity of all time that He is in fact a just God. What does that mean? That means that He in exacting severity deals with sin. He's just. He does not let sin go unchecked. It looked like it throughout all history past. Before the cross, there was all of this sinning and God didn't seem like He was doing anything about it. That's why it says it was to show at the present time that He was a God who was just. It was to set the record straight that God is not a God who turns His back on sin. God is a God who in His holiness will always deal with sin. He will be just. He will not let sin go unchecked in His universe. He has set up a standard of perfect righteousness and said, if this is broken, Sin that breaks it brings my punishment. Why? Because I'm a just God. Because I'm a just God. So the first purpose of the death of Jesus Christ was to vindicate the justice of God. It was to prove that God was just. And that is precisely what the Father accomplished by giving the Son. Here's how He did it. Here's how he did it. What Scripture tells us is that upon Jesus, as he hung upon the cross, all of the sins of humanity were placed upon him, and he became, though he was perfect and holy and innocent, he became as if he had committed every one of those sins. He was guilty and condemned by God as the, in the guilt for all of those sins. And then what God did was He dumped the vat of the wrath of God against all of those sins and poured it squarely upon His Son to the very last drop so that Jesus received the wrath of God for sin. Why would God do that? Because He had to demonstrate that He was a just God. That He punishes 
sin. Sin is an affront to His holiness. It destroys His universe. And He doesn't stand by and let it happen. He deals with it. And what He did was He dealt with it in totality, in the person of His Son, His holy, eternal Son on the cross. He dumped all of His wrath and His Son absorbed that wrath to the very last drop on the cross. That's why in the garden, the night before His crucifixion, Jesus prayed so fervently that blood emoted through His brow because he was in such intense agony knowing not folks not that his flesh would be ripped through the flogging and his hands would be pierced and feet pierced with the roman spikes what he knew was that he was going to receive the wrath of the father and that he was going to be rejected by the father for the first time in an eternal existence You see, what God did through the offering of His Son is He proved that He is just. He deals with sin fully, perfectly, always, every sin. Secondly, how did that event show that God was not only just, but the justifier, the one who, here's what justify means, makes us right before Him. Declares us to be perfectly righteous in His presence. That's what it means when God justifies. He actually takes, here's what happens, He takes For everyone that puts their faith in Jesus, He takes the righteousness of Jesus and He imputes it to their behalf. He takes the righteousness of Jesus when Jesse Glosser puts his faith and trust in Christ, the very righteousness of Jesus, God imputes it to Jesse and He sees Jesse as absolutely, perfectly righteous, as righteous as His Son That means Jesse's justified. He stands right before God. There is nothing in him that he can ever be condemned for again. He has been justified. So here's the truth. God the Father could not justify anyone without the atoning work of His Son on the cross, His justice wouldn't allow Him to. He can't just say, I'm arbitrarily going to make you righteous because I want to make you righteous. His justice won't allow that. His justice demands that sin be punished. We're all sinners. That puts us in a bad place under the wrath of God. But because of what Jesus did, because of what Jesus did on the cross, God can say, I'm going to give you perfect righteousness. I'm going to make you stand before me absolutely faultless before my throne so that I don't have to condemn you. I don't have to punish you. I can lavish all of my goodness upon you. Why? Because you're perfect like my son. You put your trust in my son and now you are perfect before me. You see, that is the just God also being the God who justifies. That's the God of kindness who justifies and the God of severity who is just and punishes sin 
perfectly, comprehensively revealed in what was taking place with Jesus and His willing sacrifice on the cross. In that moment, at the same time, all that God was, was acting and doing all that He did in light of His justice in light of His kindness and His severity. In the same act, in the same moment, God was both being severe against sin and God was also being so kind and gracious towards sinners. In that one moment, it was all of God doing both of those things to the full extent. That's the kindness and the severity of God. So what? Third question, what is going to kill pride and produce humility and fear in the life of a believer so that they stand fast in their faith? It is going to be a knowledge of God. And specifically, what knowledge of God? It is going to be as they understand the truth about the knowledge of God that He is both and fully a God of kindness and a God of severity. At the same time, in all ways, that's the kind of God that He is. We need to respect Him and honor Him and adore Him and reverently fear Him in light of that truth, that He is a God of kindness and a God of severity. So application and closing. What then do we need to do? I'll just give you four things really quickly. One is stated directly in the text. Here's what you need to do. Take note of the kindness and the severity of God. Romans chapter 11, verse 22. That's the whole point Paul is leading to. You want to stand fast in your faith? You want to live a life that kills pride with humility and fear? Here's what you need to do. Understand, take note of, focus on, learn the lessons from who God is and how He works by looking at His kindness and His severity. And understanding that both of those are in operation within the unity of God at the same time at all times. So take note of those. How do you do that? How do you understand and grow in and take note of the kindness and the severity of God? Where are you going to look for that? Church, where are you going to look? Where are you going to look, church? The Bible. You need to study and read and memorize and meditate and listen to preaching and teaching. Take the Word of God into you and from it, listen, don't try to acquire a head knowledge. Don't do that. Here's what you need to do every time you go to the Word. Try to learn about God. This is God's self-revelation. You're not there so that you can become spiritually superior. You're there so that you can become more humble so that you can kill pride, so that you can recognize the transcendency of God and the truth of His attributes and His character, so that more and more you're humbled before Him and understand that He is both a God of kindness and a God of severity, so you live in a respectful reverence for who He is. So take note of both of those how critical the Word of God is to you understanding 
how they work there. Listen to what Jesus said in John 8, 31 on how critical the Word of God is to help you as a follower. Listen, Jesus said to the Jews who believed Him, if you abide in My Word, you are truly My disciples. Everybody, focus in on that statement again and let it hit home. If you abide in My Word, you are truly My disciples. Let me say it on the negative. If you don't abide in my word, you are not truly my disciples. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. How critical the word of God is to the follower of Jesus. Jesus himself said, if you're going to be my follower, here's what you've got to do. You've got to abide in my word. That's a telltale characteristic of a follower of mine, Jesus said. Here's a second point of application. Flee from God's sovereignty and fly to God's kindness. Flee from God's sovereignty. Understand it. Understand that that's who God is. That's how God works. But allow that to cause you to flee from that and fly toward the kindness of God. That's what it says in the end of verse 22 provided that you continue in God's kindness. You see, the severity of God is not an end of itself. It is intended to cause you to fly into the goodness, the kindness of God, that you respect God enough, that you reverence Him enough, that you understand the truth of His justice to say, man, I am running as far and as fast away from that as I can, and I'm throwing myself at the kindness of God, and I'm pursuing the kindness of God. And then Rome number three, guard against spiritual pride. Paul says here, don't be proud. Illustration of the Jews that got proud down through history. Time after time, groups of people that that have happened to. And I'm going to tell you as an individual believer, we always need to be on the guard watching that pride doesn't rear its ugly head. It wants to do that all the time in every one of us. And we need to militantly guard against that. Paul gives information here that helps us. He says, here's the only way you stand. It's through faith. You don't stand because you do something really good. You don't stand because you work really hard. You stand because of faith. In other words, it's all of God. Faith is a gift from God. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. So you don't stand because of some great strength or merit on your own, you stand through faith before God, right before Him. Be humble. Kill pride. If you ever see it creeping up, you get a little more Bible knowledge, you get a little more knowledge of God, don't ever think, oh wow, I'm superior over the people that are around me. You know what true knowledge of God will always do? It will take us more and more into humility. If you are applying knowledge of God, true knowledge of God, accurately, biblically to the heart, it is going to increase your humility, not increase your pride. And then, finally, number four, pursue holiness. I want to read you one last verse, 2 Corinthians 7.1. 
Paul wrote, since we have these promises, I'm going to just pause right there. There's the kindness of God. There's all the blessings and the goodness of God. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. You see the bookends? The promises of God, the kindness of God. The opposite side, the fear of God. And what's in the middle? Our holiness. It's the kindness of God and the fear of God understood correctly, holding them in unity together that helps us to pursue holiness because we see who God truly is. What we're going to do now as we close is we're going to receive communion together. Communion is for those who have placed their trust in Jesus Christ. And what a great picture this is of what we're talking about right here. Because in communion, you have the elements of the broken bread and the juice that represent the broken body and the spilled blood of the Lord that we just talked about. And what is the broken body and spilled blood of the Lord the greatest picture of human history of? It is the greatest picture of God being a God of kindness and God being a God of severity. So look to Jesus to understand the truth of God's kindness and His severity. And remember as we take communion what He did for us through His willing sacrifice.